Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. From tales of pirates and privateers to murderers, tragic accidents to wartime escapades, this podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception, so get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. I'll be talking about today occurred in the year 1746. But what else happened that year? Well, on January the 8th, Bonnie Prince Charlie, or Prince Charles Edward Stuart, occupied Stirlings in Scotland with his troops. On February the 19th, Prince William, Duke of Cumberland, issues a proclamation offering an amnesty to participants in the Jacobite Rebellion directing them that they can avoid punishment if they turn their weapons in to their local Presbyterian church. On April 16th, the Battle of Culloden in Scotland, the final pitched battle fought on British soil, brings an end to the Jacobite Rising of 1745. On May 27th, the three Scottish leaders of the Jacobite Uprising, the Earl of Kilmarnock, Lord Balmerino and Lord Lovett are imprisoned for treason in the Tower of London, where they are held by the British government until their execution. Boyd and Balmerino are beheaded the following year, while Fraser is put to the death on 1747. On June 27th, Flora MacDonald helps Bonnie Prince Charlie, disguised as Betty Burke, an Irish maid, evade capture by landing him on the Isle of Skye. And on October the 1st, Bonnie Prince Charlie flees to France. But while all that was going on, Bristol was scandalised by the case of Mary Hamilton, the female husband, who was convicted of fraud at Taunton for posing as a man and getting married several times. Word of the week. And on the theme of weddings, this week I'm proud to give you... Bridelope, which is no relation to a jackalope. This is, as the Oxford English Dictionary puts it, the oldest known Teutonic name for wedding. Bridelope can also mean the bridal run, in which the bride proceeds to her new home with or without tin cans attached to the car. 
As for the case of Mary Hamilton, few records of these events have survived. However, that same year, Henry Fielding, barrister, magistrate, and founder of the first English detective force, sometimes called the father of modern novel, produced a fictionalised version of events called The Female Husband. Here's Mary's story with some extracts from that book. Born on the Isle of Man on August 16th, 1721, Mary's father died and her mother remarried before Mary was born. The girl was brought up in the strictest principles of virtue and religion. Nor did she in her younger years discover the least proneness to any kind of vice, much less give cause for suspicion that she would one day disgrace her sex by the most abominable and unnatural pollutions. When she was still a young woman, Mary was first seduced by one Anne Johnson, a neighbour. The two moved to Bristol, where they lived together until Mrs Johnson left Mary for a man. She was no sooner informed of it than she became frantic. She tore her hair, beat her breasts, and behaved in as outrageous a manner as the fondest husband could. Deciding to dress in men's clothing, Mary, who was a very pretty woman, now appeared a most beautiful youth. This done, she sailed to Ireland, and there she married a 68-year-old wealthy widow. According to Fielding, the deception didn't last long, and when the older woman discovered it... A storm arose as if drums, guns, wind and thunder were all roaring together. Villain, rogue, whore, beast, cheat, all resounded at the same instant. I am married to one who is no man. After that, Hamilton ended up in Dartmouth, where she rented a room in the house of Mary Creed, where Creed's niece, Mary Price, also resided. Hamilton pretended to be a doctor and in that role treated young Mary for green sickness, which is a form of anemia. In those days it was also referred to as the virgin's disease and only affected young girls. The two soon started an intimate relationship and were married in Ashburton, Devon, travelling the country as husband and wife while Hamilton worked selling treatments for common ailments. Just shy of two months of marriage, Mary Price decided that she was done with Charles Hamilton and reported her husband to the authorities, claiming that she had just figured out that Hamilton was not actually a man, triggering an investigation into the person who would become famously known as the female husband. At that point, Hamilton left for Wells as a warrant was issued for their arrest. In court, when his first wife, an innocent young woman, was questioned about their relations, The young girl's account staggered her mother's belief and made her cry out, Oh child, there is no such thing in human nature. The Newgate calendar reported that Hamilton had enjoyed 14 wives. Regardless, as a result of his last marriage, he was arrested and tried in Somerset. This woman was brought before the court, but under what specific charge or upon what penal statute she was indicted, we can neither trace by the mention of circumstance, nor could we frame an indictment to meet the gross offence, because the law never contemplated a marriage among women. At the general court sessions of the Peace of Somersetshire in Taunton, Mary Hamilton, otherwise known as George, or Charles Hamilton, 
was tried for pretending to be a man and marrying 14 women. His last wife was Mary Price, who appeared in court to give evidence. I've been married to the prisoner some little time since at the parish church of St Cuthbert in Wells and we were bedded as man and wife and lived as such for about a quarter of a year. I thought the prisoner to be a man owing to the use of certain vile and deceitful practices not fit to be mentioned. Henry Fielding goes on to say, She became mistrustful and comparing certain circumstances with the married goodies, her neighbours, she was convinced that Mary had acted the part of Charles towards her by the vilest and most deceitful practices. Book of the Week Due to the fact that I was recording a special Halloween episode on the weekend, I couldn't go out for my walk. But I have got a book review for you. And this one is old school. In fact, it's Dracula, the classic by Bram Stoker. With a cast of powerful characters, Stoker weaves his tale in such a way that the story never loses momentum. Harker, Seward and Van Helsing are all well-crafted and provide powerful contrasts throughout the narrative, while Count Dracula is not only eerie in his presentation, but also one of the scariest villains in 19th century literature. Bram Stoker set the ground rules for what a vampire should be, and set the benchmark for all other writers of the vampire afterwards. Indeed, if tyrannical villains are a necessity of Gothic fiction, then Count Dracula is the father of all Gothic villains, in spite of it being one of the last Gothic fiction novels to be written. It's a work of genius that his presence is felt so strongly in the novel, with him appearing in the flesh so rarely, like in this bit. His face was a strong, a very strong aquiline, with high bridge of the thin nose and peculiarly arched nostrils, with lofty damned forehead and hair growing scantily round the temples, but profusely elsewhere. His eyebrows were very massive, almost meeting over the nose, and with bushy hair that seemed to curl in his own profusion. The mouth, so far as I could see it under the heavy moustache, was fixed and rather cruel-looking, with peculiarly sharp white teeth. These protruded over the lips, whose remarkable ruddiness showed astonishing vitality in a man of his years. For the rest, his ears were pale and at the tops extremely pointed, the chin was broad and strong, and the cheeks firm, though thin. The general effect was one of extraordinary pallor. The case of Mary Hamilton caused a debate in court as to what the crime was, and in the end they agreed to say that the prisoner was an uncommon, notorious cheat, and as such, was sentenced to be publicly whipped in the towns of Taunton, Glastonbury, Wells and Shepton Mallet, and then to be imprisoned for six months. It's alleged that on the evening of the first whipping, Mary offered her jailer money to get her a young girl to satisfy her desires. A letter was published in the Taunton Courier some years later. 
a gentleman, now residing in Taunton, had an account of the evidence in the case from two persons who attended the trial. One of them was a juryman. The arts which the imposter practiced were as curious as revolting, but of course, are unfit for publication. Her object was to obtain the little property females possessed, and that being accomplished, she disappeared to practice her arts in other situations, and which she did successfully for some years. At the trial, those of the first 13 wives who gave evidence deposed that they entertained no doubt whatever that the prisoner was of the male sex, but Mary Price, the 14th, who was the first widow whom the prisoner married, discovered the impersonation after three months' cohabitation, on which she was brought to trial and convicted. In the media, Henry Fielding's version of the story was adapted into a BBC Radio 4 play of the same name, starring comedian Sandy Toxvig. The play was written by Sheila Hannan and was first broadcast in June 2006. The 1813 publication of Henry Fielding's book was the subject of an appraisal in 2010 episode of Antiques Roadshow entitled Naughty or Nice. The publication includes the colour etching attributed, possibly falsely, to George Cruikshank, which depicts Hamilton being publicly whipped for her crimes. Whilst delving into the research for this story, I came across other female husbands. For example, on the 12th of September, 1680, in London, James Howard married Arabella Hunt. Hunt later filed for divorce, stating that Howard was of double gender, or hermaphrodite, and still married to a man as a woman. After being examined by midwives, Howard was declared a woman in all her parts. Howard's social status as a gentry and willingness to abide with the court's order protected him from penalty. Another case was that of Mary Jewett, the first documented case specifically mentioning the term female husband. As described in English broadside, the male and female husband of 1682 this recounted the case of an intersex person named Mary Jewett, who was abandoned and who was raised as a girl by a midwife in St Albans. Jewett then worked with the nurse for years under a female identity until getting a woman pregnant. A judge decided that this act was proof of manhood and that Jewett had to live as a man and marry the woman. Jewett agreed to do so. In 1829, it was reported that another female husband, James Allen, had successfully lived as a man without facing prosecution for 21 years. Allen had married Abigail on the 13th of December 1808 at St Giles Church in Camberwell. At the time, Abigail was working as a housemaid and James was the groom, both in service of Mr Ward of 6 Camberwell Terrace. James was described as being a smart and handsome young man who began a relationship with Abigail. After the wedding, they headed to a house called The Bull in Gray's Inn Lane, where they slept, but then the groom became ill and continued to pretend to be for the rest of the wedding night. After the wedding, Abigail went back to work and James was hired by Mr Lonsdale of Mays Hill Blackheath. This meant that the newlyweds barely saw each other and their relationship was through correspondence. After eight months, James had saved enough money to become the landlord of the Sun Pub in Baldock, 
Hertfordshire. Abigail gave up her work to join him, and they were doing well, until a robbery forced them to give that all up, and they moved to London, where James got a job as a dockhand. During his time there, the other men didn't suspect a thing. James would only get some joking about his voice, which had a particular tone. It was only under autopsy at St Thomas Hospital in London that his sex was discovered to be female, and as another surprise, that she had given birth. When asked as to how it was possible for James to have kept this secret from her, Abigail said that since the wedding night, she assumed that he was an imperfect person, deformed in some way, because every time she approached him, he would always shrink away, anxious not to be touched. If she mentioned it, he would become very angry. James would generally dress in sailor's clothes, thick flannel waistcoats which extended from the neck to the hips, and wrapped a linen bandage around his chest, saying that it was to protect his lungs from the cold. Abigail said she was not suspicious of her husband's sex because Alan was uncannily strong. Once the revelation came to light, she felt that she was threatened by her neighbours, and the only way that they would leave her alone would be to swear she had no idea. A sensational pamphlet was purported to provide the public with an authentic narrative of the extraordinary career of James Allen, the female husband. In the news today, meteorologists have discovered the reason behind the strange weather actually in Bradley Stokes' silence slabs. It turns out that the thunder and lightning was because the boffins were brainstorming. Once upon a time. Boring. It was the best of times. It was the worst. You got that right. What's your problem? We want new stories. Hi, it's Frankie. And Garrett. And we host the Ever Trending Story, a weekly podcast where we bring to life a fictional story created by our own minds and some of the hottest, craziest trends from the internet. Find us wherever you download podcasts and be sure to join the fun on social media at EverTrendingPod. Back in the day facts. And we start off with the 16th of October in 1813, which saw the Battle of Leipzig the largest battle in Europe prior to World War I. Napoleon's forces defeated Prussia, Austria and Russia. This battle was the bloodiest of the Napoleonic Wars, with over 200,000 rounds of artillery ammunition having been used. Casualties on both sides were astoundingly high, such that locals had difficulty disposing of the corpses, with some still visible the following year. On the 17th of October, 1879, nearly a thousand people attended a lecture in Bristol given by Alexander Graham Bell to explain his invention of the telephone. That was Alexander Graham Bell's actual voice, taken from a wax cylinder that's kept at the Smithsonian Museum. On the 18th of October, 1961, 
the film adaptation of the 1957 Broadway musical West Side Story, directed by Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins and starring Natalie Wood, debuts. It wins an Academy Award for Best Picture in 1962. On the 19th of October, 1856, James Kelly and Jack Smith fight bare-knuckle for an astonishing 6 hours and 15 minutes in Melbourne. And on the 21st of October, 1805, we saw the Battle of Trafalgar. British Admiral Horatio Nelson led a much smaller British fleet against the combined forces of the Spanish and French, who lost 22 ships. Nelson lost none. During the battle, Nelson was shot by a French musketeer and died soon afterwards. He was 47. Nelson was respected for his inspirational leadership and superb grasp of strategy and unconventional tactics that came to be known as the Nelson Touch. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and found it as interesting as I found it researching. As always, I'd like to thank those who are the real stars of the show, the people who bring the stories to life. And today, we have Joe Wilson and Kate Kendall from St Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, as well as Henry Arnold and Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise, featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at BacktrackerUK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk So until next time guys, take care and look after each other.